short of 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness. From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys, there's your picture Drop the shadows out of sight This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and yes... I did watch the Oscars, um, Sunday night it was, yes, and they divided up those who walk in darkness from those who walk in light, indeed. Today's March 7th, 2006, and, uh, I tried to review my thoughts on the Oscars. I think I'm running out of thoughts on awards shows. The guy who, um, won for Truman Capote has won 20. Awards. I've been told that there's even a show now to give an award for the best awards show. <laughs> We've hit the wall. My favorite Oscar story comes from Glenda Jackson, I think. Glenda Jackson's mother is a retired cleaning woman, and she says that she always gives mom her uh, awards, and her mother has polished them so much that they are now down to base metal. Uh, they sit in the middle of her mother's living room. Linda Hunt spoke about the same sort of thing. I think she was on NPR this week. She talked about how her Oscar started to peel, the gold started to peel off, and she had it recast. And then it started to peel again, and this time she let it be. Who knows, what is it? The oldest Oscar story is the one about Betty Davis. She said that... Uh, the award figure, the 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 gold uh, gentleman, she said it reminded her of her first husband, Oscar. She said the bottom looked like Oscar's bottom. It's been called Oscar ever since. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess we all need an award, but I always think of the, you know, four-year-old birthday party where you have to be certain that everyone has a prize or they go home in tears. Dustin Hoffman bowed and bowed and assured those who didn't win uh, that they were very necessary, that sort of thing. Uh, imagine calling those people losers. Yes, I <laughs> can't help but think it's funny. Uh, I loved Lily Tomlin. She had this jacket with the blue satin on the sleeves, and I thought, I wonder if I could make something like that. I had this this sort of... Uh, bourgeois, opulent feeling, you know. Maybe I could copy it. She and Meryl Streep were super elegant, you know, no longer young, but most beautiful. Uh, they gave an award to the uh, director, Robert Altman, one of those special achievement Oscars. And before presenting it to him, they did this shtick, you know, 
they did it very well, actually. It was a hard one, and they had to hug each other when it was over. They talked over each other's lines. And this, of course, refers to the way Robert Altman's characters do it in his films. I wasn't sure the audience quite followed what what they were up to. Uh, uh, Altman invented this whole new style, I suppose uh, some people called it realism. He started with the movie mash. You remember, uh, we were all startled and shocked by this overlapping dialogue. Uh, I remember Lily Tomlin in Nashville, an amazing movie. Uh, I think of Nashville in a way, it's very contemporary. Uh, I watch that love scene with Keith Carradine. It gets me every time, you know, a really modern, sophisticated uh, affair, if you like, uh, but everyone in that film is so uh, so American, especially the woman who's still in love with the Kennedy brothers, you know. Anyway, I think it's curious how our movies, well, our theater, it is our theater now, let's face it, in the 21st century, film is our theater. How it's become a sort of secular religion. Uh, basically, it's our secular culture. Gore Vidal tells us that the children, the young people, the students, learn their history and their sociology and their politics and all of it from the movies. We have to face this fact, and whether you like it or not, uh, movies matter. No wonder so many neocons and right-wingers gripe about Hollywood. I think of my my favorite headache, Michael Medved. Ooh, <laughs> Somebody called him Savonarola at the multiplex. <laughs> He's always scolding Hollywood for its dreadful morals. Of course, Hollywood is at the same time very much part of our capitalist world. They are very, very mainstream in spite of their efforts to be uh, anarchists and radicals. I always think of old Louise Brooks. Back in the day, as they say, long ago, Louise Brooks, uh, Lulu, they called her Lulu. She wrote about the way the bohemian culture of early Hollywood gave way to a new conservatism many, many years ago. She said that in the beginning, in the very, very early days, it was all a party, a gypsy-style party, you know, a la New Orleans. <laughs> they were wild and crazy guys for real. So long as those films were silent, you know. Then came the talkies, and the actors had to go home to bed and learn their lines. They had to get up early. And uh, then the party was over. Today, our modern actors, the superstars anyway, are actors like athletes. They have to be disciplined to the max. It's hard to think of them having any fun. I'm, I'm sure they do, but... Uh, it's really uh, become so incredibly, what do you call that, uh, uh, so difficult, so difficult to uh, to be a superstar, you know, to succeed and be one of the top players in the business. Uh, the physical perfection of some of these folks just knocks me out. I, Selma Hayek, Uma Thurman... Uh, Lean superstars. They seem uh, ultra-human. Uh, I 
got a pang at the shot of Mickey Rooney in the audience. Uh, oh, dear, dear. And then Lauren Bacall came out to present an award, and she was, of course, completely together and quite beautiful, but uh, she was shaking a bit. Uh, mortality looms. For some reason or another, whenever I watch the Academy Awards, I count the dead, the elders. Maura Shearer of the Red Shoes died this year, and of course the great Richard Pryor, and so many more. Uh, ah, let's see, who have we seen in recent years? The last glimpse of Jennifer Jones, the last shot of Olivia de Havilland. I won't go on. Uh, it just seems to me that maybe Garbo had a... Uh, had a good thing going when she decided simply to get off the stage. Oh, we do long to be young and beautiful, but some folks uh, are perfectly willing <laughs> to come and present themselves, even at their uh, worst. Never mind, never mind. I want to skip all the stuff about the winners and uh, tell you a little bit today about some documentaries, some things you may have missed. Uh, everywhere we look now, we've got these docudramas. Progressive films coming, waves of them coming back. Isn't it wonderful? Good night and good luck. Movies like that in which you take reality and try to uh, give it a little punch, punch it up a little bit so we can teach the young people uh, where we've been and why we didn't. Yes, the day of the actual documentary has also arrived. I've watched, oh gosh, so many uh, movies about women suffering uh, in the Middle East under Islam, that kind of thing. Uh, Return to Kandahar, I was watching last night. Uh, what was it Emily Dickinson wrote? She wrote, I like a look of agony because I know it's true. We're not masochists. It's just that uh, I see very little point in today's world uh, to have fiction films in which people are tortured and suffer the way George Clooney suffered in Syriana. It seems a little, little redundant, you know. <laughs> we don't really need uh, the fiction film uh, because all the world's a stage as never before. All you need to do is turn your camera on and you've got it. Many, many years ago... Uh, Orson Welles told us that film is the greatest uh, educational tool we'll ever have. And remember Francis Ford Coppola said that somewhere there's a little girl with a camcorder out there and she's going to change the world. And uh, documentary filmmaking uh, is getting, what's the word, uh, ubiquitous everywhere because there's all this new digital equipment and it's easy, you know, you just get in there with your camera and you can do it. Uh, all the way through the history of film, there are these shifts, you know, to lighter, easier equipment. So you can get an auteur who's uh, just a little tiny, you know, woman five feet tall. You don't need all these uh, guys with their equipment. Uh, now, according to the guys who are supposed to know about this, these digital uh, cameras, yes... Present us with a new aesthetic and a new relation to the audience, yes. Uh, I'm looking here at David Denby in the current cinema, Candid Cameras. Check it out. 
he writes about some new documentaries and how they were done. And uh, he says the invention in the 20s of the Bell & Howell six-pound handheld camera made it possible in the Second World War for combat photographers to throw themselves into battle alongside infantrymen. Then comes the early 60s, the development of lightweight 16 millimeter, millimeter cameras with magazines holding 400 feet of film. It allowed the filmmaker to enter into volatile situations and continue shooting for 10 minutes at a time. Uh, then comes uh, direct cinema, cinema verite. That is the existential self-creation of the filmmaker as he responds to life unfolding around him. <laughs> I think of the, yes, the movie Grizzly Man, which scared the pants off me. I don't want to get that close to a bear anyway. The filmmakers uh, uh, are taking things under control, you know. You don't have to depend on other people. It's a one-man show, you know. It's a one-man deal. So a one-man filmmaker can declare himself a professional, whereas a few years ago he was just an amateur uh, uh, Denby goes on to say that there's some other good reasons for this explosion in documentary films. He says the commercial networks may have given up on documentaries, but the public and the cable television stations both exhibit and finance these nonfiction films. As in the 60s, our political atmosphere is ripe for film journalism. I think of all the kids in the high schools, yes. Public life is awash everywhere you look. Scoundrels, liars, deluded ideologues all over the world. There's cultural conflict playing out in the streets. What we call culture clash, the adventure of filmmaking, is irresistible. Let me tell you about a film that uh, mattered so much to me because I think that this uh, ecological disaster or death by technology that we're facing... It's getting, it's heating up, it's getting serious, folks. You know, the one about the frog, you throw a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But when it heats up slowly, as the world is doing today, you know, it will boil to death. Um, I want to tell you about the movie. Uh, it was nominated, but it didn't win. Uh, the documentary Darwin's Nightmare. And it's uh, all about the perch, the Nile perch. In Lake Victoria. I guess that isn't as much fun as the... Oh, the movie that did win is the one about the penguins. And that's about penguin parenting. And everyone loved it. And it was happy, happy and loving. And just a very moving, beautiful film. Darwin's Nightmare is not not a pretty picture. It's about everything getting swallowed up in Lake Victoria, right? Um... The Nile perch is a huge exotic fish, and it was introduced into Lake Victoria in a misbegotten experiment in the 1960s. It's become a predator, and it has eliminated more than 200 other species. Okay, this Nile perch turned a mixed economy uh, into Darwin's nightmare, Rice. Right. Uh, the economy that flourished around the lake uh, was uh, multifaceted, but it's now that with the, the perch has turned it into a voracious mono economy. Uh, let's see now. The filmmaker, 
is an Austrian, his name is Hubert Sauper, S-A-U-P-E-R. So he settled into a lakefront town uh, in Tanzania, into one of those anomalous, raffishly sinister, sinister Conradian places. I love that. Yes, worthy of Joseph Conrad. He took his film crew there, and uh, yes, he settled into this place, this sinister Conradian place, the sort of... Uh, place that dots the earth and he uh, discovered the big European market for the Nile perch and this draws people from all over the countryside to work at Lake Victoria but catching this fish is so dangerous that many of the young men die many others end up as servants prostitutes this sort of thing Every day, crews from a Russian cargo company fly hundreds of tons of the Nile perch, the fillets. Yes, they fly them out and uh, take them to Europe. But the workers are so poorly paid that they can't afford to eat these fish. They are left with the heads and the bones. Ha ha, yet. I think of, I think of Ireland during the famine, right? The good stuff had to be sold. Anyway, if the filmmaker is fired up by anti-globalist conviction, his instincts as an artist and as a man rule out any kind of rhetoric or cheapness. According to Denby Darwin's Nightmare is a fully realized poetic vision. The enormous cargo planes cast strange shadows on the water as they fly in and out. The town, town in Tanzania has been devastated by AIDS. It's an incoherent gathering place full of vulnerable fishermen, drunken pilots, prostitutes longing to get out, orphan children who just live in the streets, get stoned at night. Uh, the dolorousness of this scene is overpowering, but so is the beauty of the faces and the landscape. The filmmaker moves in close, establishes an unusual intimacy with his subjects. These men, women, and children get a chance to explain their own roles in an inexorable process in which nearly everyone, sooner or later, becomes a victim. I remember in documentary years ago, well, docudrama called Pichote, about Brazil, it was the grimmest thing I think I had seen up to that time in my life. And uh, I was startled by the capacity of people in these horrendous situations to hang on to some joy. Uh, remember an old teacher I had, a rather weepy lady. Um, she used to say over and over again when she contemplated the inhumanity on earth, she would say... Uh, Shall we not sing as the night comes on? Near old Dr. Goldine. There are uh, some other documentaries mentioned by David Denby. Uh, there's one I have not seen called Street Fight that seems like a wonderful political, <laughs> political film. Uh, it's um, uh, two black dudes, uh, and they're both Democrats. And this street fight, yes, takes place in Newark, right, the mayor of Newark, okay. This is, uh, this is as good as, uh, one of the Clinton documentaries, uh, 
Yeah, let me read you a paragraph of this. Uh, Two Newark politicians are about to go at it again. (laughs) They're like rival gladiators whose pride won't let them ignore taunts. A couple of weeks ago, Cory Booker, 36-year-old lawyer and former city councilman, kicked off his second campaign for mayor of Newark, New Jersey. The current mayor, Sharp James, who is 70, has held the office since 1986. He has not yet announced whether he will run again. He has a campaign chest of two million, and he's unlikely to retire from the scene. If he does run, the race will reunite the men in a sequel to an acrimonious 2002 battle, a campaign that has been captured in the extraordinary Oscar-nominated documentary Street Fight. Now, both these men are black. Both are Democrats. Republicans don't figure in Newark's politics. Elections are nonpartisan. Now, it's safe to say that these guys detest each other. The casting gods who occasionally attend to real life have, uh, in this case, done their job extremely well. First, we have the challenger, Cory Booker, young, tall, athletic, civil rights activist. Uh, yeah, well, his parents were, anyway. He attended Stanford. He attended the Yale Law School and Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Okay, that's the 36-year-old. Uh, the new age dude, and then there's the old pro, Sharp James, stocky, up from the ghetto bruiser. The essence of a machine politician, an operator who sometimes delivers, yeah, skyscraper or sports arena to Newark's downtown, a renaissance, in quotes. (laughs) Think of Jerry Brown, right? You know, uh, throw him a ball and give him a sports arena. Anyway, uh, Booker, that's the young man. Booker's a bachelor, lives in a public housing apartment, strenuously sincere, sincere in his manner, a little full of himself. James, this is the 70-year-old dude, drives a Rolls, lives high, flirts, dances, menaces his way through a campaign. One is a moralist who expects to be judged by the sternest criteria. The other is a canny mover who tells people that he has the juice and the human understanding to give them what they want. In brief, this young director, uh, guy who directed Street Fight, His name is Marshall Curry. Has hit the documentary jackpot. The movie will become the inescapable referent for media coverage of a new campaign. Okay, back in 2002, the filmmaker took his small, lightweight digital camera into Booker's campaign headquarters and into the streets for rallies, picnics, impromptu playground arguments, and much else in the feverish political life of Newark. The movie begins a few months before the election and concludes after voting day. It's conventional in form. What has fascinated African-American commentators, however, is the way this 2002 race became a testing ground for the political weight of blackness, in quotes. Sharp James, in his youth, struggled as a black man to make his way in politics, yet he ran a racist campaign against Cory Booker. James is dark-skinned, Booker is light. James, in a variety of ways, implied that Booker wasn't really black enough. 
and that he was Jewish, too, even though Booker is Baptist. <sighs> James, this is the old guy, says says of his rival, he says so. He went to Stanford, and he's Jewish. He said that on the Today Show, as if one fact inevitably followed from the other. This statement stands out for its absurdity, as well as for the brazenness of its intended smear. From the evidence of this and other scenes in the movie, it's apparent, yes, that this old dude hits below the belt. When Curry attends James' rallies, he gets hassled and manhandled by thugs in the police department, who figure correctly that he is a Booker supporter. That is, the the filmmaker seems to be on the side of this 36-year-old young man, the lawyer, the uh, the competition. In the middle of this fracas, the filmmaker holds his camera at his waist, keeps it running. Angry faces loom over him. James' people in there dealing with the filmmaker reveal a good deal about their customary way of doing business. Okay, I think what's wonderful about this campaign is that we have two black candidates running for political office. And they seem to be following the mold of American politics right down, <laughs> right down to the last detail. I think that's funny. Get a hold of it if you can. It's called Street Fight, and I bet we see it on cable. The filmmaker is Marshall Curry, and it's about two guys who want to be the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. And if you ever wanted a uh, a film that gave you history, what is that? Uh, history reruns. History doesn't repeat itself, but the people do. Same guys, different hats, different costumes. Now, uh, there's so many things I had listed today. I wanted to tell you all about uh, the article by Jane Mayer on torture in the New Yorker. Find it if you can. I want to tell you all about um, Death by Danish Cartoon. There's a piece in the February 27th New Yorker. I can't live without the New Yorker. By Jane Kramer that pretty much wraps it up. If I were teaching still, I would use her... Oh, it's about a page and a half. And she tries to explain, you know, how it was, starting with the fatwa against Salman Rushdie or the murder of the filmmaker Theo van Gogh in Holland, how this culture war caught fire. Yes, the moral black match. Ah, uh, let's see. There's 200,000 Muslims living in Denmark, and they weren't upset. Anyway, somebody used the Danish cartoons to provoke. Yes, provocateurs, we've got them everywhere. Let's see, it's time for me to get off the air, but I have one more. I want to give you one more title, just while I have time. I wish I could uh, tell you about it. The title is Our Brand is Crisis. And it's another campaign film which chronicles what happened a few years ago when President Clinton's former consultants, that is James Carville and the rest, uh, went down to Bolivia and tried to promote <laughs> yes, <laughs> tried to promote Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, or Goni, G-O-N-I, as everyone calls him, tried to get him back into office. And the Clinton gang um, actually managed to pull it off, but it didn't work. See, he, uh, he um, they got him in, but then he left office because, uh, well, it's just too much to explain. Um, 
you'll watch a disaster unfold in this movie. It turns out that this guy is a wealthy industrialist, and he was unable or unwilling to make a connection with an enraged people. And this movie just proves that there's only so much you can do with propaganda, even when it's the best kind. That movie's title is Our Brand is Crisis. And it's all about the mess in Bolivia. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, you know, remember God isn't dead. She's just gone to the movies. Go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. On International Women's Day, March 8th, as KPFA presents an audio tapestry of women's voices from around the world, from the front lines of Palestine to the farmlands of Missouri, we'll hear women telling their stories through music, theater, news, and information. Tune in to KPFA or online at kpfa.org from 12 a.m. March 8th to midnight as we highlight and celebrate the struggles and achievements of women across the globe on this International Women's Day. are listening to 94.1 KPFA or KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, where the time is now just short of 